0: Hello, and welcome to Another World Audiobooks. Folks, this is where the story starts getting good. We start to see the descent into madness of Victor Frankenstein. Like I said in the last episode, I'm really glad you're giving this book a chance. I know I had a lot of preconceived notions about it, but so far it's wouldn't be a good book. And I'm so excited, we got another patron last week. Huge shout out to my man Brad Robertson, fellow podcaster, all around nice guy. Thanks so much for your support. Remember, if you want to join the ranks of citizens here in Another World, just go to patreon.com slash anotherworldaudiobooks. Why, you may ask, would I ever want to become a patron? And if you did ask that, I would answer, go to patreon.com slash anotherworldaudiobooks and watch the video video there. You'll know why. But right now, we've got a book to get to. So without further ado, I give you Frankenstein. Chapter 2 We were brought up together. There was not quite a year difference in our ages. I need not say that we were strangers to any species of disunion or dispute. Harmony was the soul of our companionship, and the diversity and contrast that subsisted in our characters drew us nearer together. Elizabeth was of a calmer and more concentrated disposition, but with all my ardour, I was capable of a more intense application, and was more deeply smitten with the thirst for knowledge. She busied herself with following the aerial creations of the poets, and in the majestic and wondrous scenes which surrounded our Swiss home, the sublime shapes of the mountains, the changes of the seasons, tempest and calm, the silence of winter, and the light and turbulence of our alpine summers— she found ample scope for admiration and delight. While my companion contemplated with a serious and satisfied spirit the magnificent appearance of things, I delighted in investigating their causes. The world was to me a secret which I desired to divine. Curiosity, earnest research to learn the hidden laws of nature, gladness akin to rapture, as they were unfolded to me, are among the earliest sensations I can remember." "'On the birth of a second son, my junior by seven years, "'my parents gave up entirely their wandering life "'and fixed themselves in their native country. "'We possessed a house in Geneva, "'and a campagne on Bervey, the eastern shore of the lake, "'at the distance of rather more than a league from the city. "'We resided principally in the latter, "'and the lives of my parents were passed in considerable seclusion. "'It was my temper to avoid a crowd "'and to attach myself fervently to a few. "'I was indifferent, therefore, to my schoolfellows in general.' "'but I united myself in the bonds of the closest friendship to one among them. "'Henry Clerval was the son of a merchant of Geneva. "'He was a boy of singular talent and fancy. "'He loved enterprise, hardship, and even danger for its own sake. "'He was deeply read in books of chivalry and romance. "'He composed heroic songs and began to write many a tale of enchantment and knightly adventure. "'He tried to make us act plays and to enter into masquerades.' in which the characters were drawn from the heroes of Roncesvalles, of the round-table of King Arthur, and the chivalrous train who shed their blood to redeem the holy sepulchre from the hands of the infidels. No human being could have passed a happier childhood than myself. My parents were possessed by the very spirit of kindness and indulgence. We felt that they were not the tyrants to rule our lot according to their caprice, but the agents and creators of all the many delights which we enjoyed— When I mingled with other families, I distinctly discerned how peculiarly fortunate my lot was, and gratitude assisted the development of filial love. My temper was sometimes violent, and my passions vehement, but by some law in my temperature they would turn not towards childish pursuits, but to eager desire to learn, and not to learn all things indiscriminately. I confess that neither the structure of languages nor the code of governments nor the politics of various states possessed attractions to me, It was the secrets of heaven and earth that I desired to learn, and whether it was the outward substance of things, or the inner spirit of nature, and the mysterious soul of man that occupied me, still my inquiries were directed to the metaphysical, or in its highest sense, the physical secrets of the world. Meanwhile, Clerval occupied himself, so to speak, with the moral relations of things. The busiest stage of life, the virtues of heroes, and the actions of men were his theme, and his hope and his dream was to become one among those whose names are recorded in story as the gallant and adventurous benefactors of our species. The saintly soul of Elizabeth shone like a shrine-dedicated lamp in our peaceful home. Her sympathy was ours, her smile, her soft voice, the sweet glance of her celestial eyes were ever there to bless and animate us. She was the living spirit of love to soften and attract, I might have become sullen in my study, rough through the ardour of my nature, but that she was there to subdue me to a semblance of her own gentleness. And Clerval could aught ill entrench on the noble spirit of Clerval; yet he might not have been so perfectly humane, so thoughtful in his generosity, so full of kindness and tenderness amidst his passion for adventurous exploit, had she not unfolded to him the real loveliness of beneficence, and, and made the doing good the end and aim of his soaring ambition.' I feel exquisite pleasure in dwelling on the recollections of childhood, before misfortune had tainted my mind and changed its bright visions of extensive usefulness into gloomy, narrow reflections upon self. Besides, in drawing the picture of my early days, I also record those events which led, by insensible steps, to my aftertale of misery, for when I would account to myself for the birth of that passion which afterwards ruled my destiny, I find it arise, like a mountain river, from ignobled and almost forgotten sources. But swelling as it proceeded, it became the torrent which, in its course, has swept away all my hopes and joys. Natural philosophy is the genius that has regulated my fate. I desire, therefore, in this narration, to state those facts which led to my predilection for that science. When I was thirteen years of age, we all went on a party of pleasure to the baths near Thonon. The inclemency of the weather obliged us to remain a day and confined to the inn, in this house I chanced to find a volume of the works of Cornelius Agrippa. I opened it with apathy. The theory which he attempts to demonstrate and the wonderful facts which he relates soon changed his feeling into enthusiasm. A new light seemed to dawn upon my mind, and, bounding with joy, I communicated my discovery to my father. My father looked carelessly at the title page of my book and said, "'Ah, Cornelius Agrippa, my dear Victor, do not waste your time upon this. It is sad trash.' If, instead of this remark, my father had taken the pains to explain to me that the principle of Agrippa had been entirely exploded, and that a modern system of science had been introduced which possessed much greater powers than the ancient, because the powers of the latter were chimerical, while those of the former were real and practical, under such circumstances I should certainly have thrown Agrippa aside and have contented my imagination, warmed as it was, by returning with greater ardour to my former studies.' It is even possible that the train of my ideas would never have received the fatal impulse that led to my ruin, but the cursory glance my father had taken of my volume by no means assured me that he was acquainted with its contents, and I continued to read with the greatest avidity. When I returned home, my first care was to procure the whole works of this author, and afterwards of Paracelsus and Albertus Magnus. I read and studied the wild fancies of these writers with delight. They appeared to me treasures known to few besides myself— I have described myself as always having been imbued with a fervent longing to penetrate the secrets of nature in spite of the intense labour and wonderful discoveries of modern philosophers I always came from my studies discontented and unsatisfied sir isaac newton is said to have avowed that he felt like a child picking up shells beside the great and unexplored ocean of truth Those of his successors in every branch of natural philosophy with whom I was acquainted appeared even to my boy's apprehensions, as Tyros engaged in the same pursuit. The untaught peasant beheld the elements around him, and was acquainted with their practical uses. The most learned philosopher knew little more. He had partially unveiled the face of nature, but her immortal lineaments were still a wonder and a mystery. Anatomize, and give names— But not to speak of a final cause. Causes in their secondary and tertiary grades were utterly unknown to him. I had gazed upon the fortifications and impediments that seemed to keep human beings from entering the citadel of nature, and rashly and ignorantly I had repined. But here were books, and here were men who had penetrated deeper and knew more. I took their word for all that they averred, and I became their disciple. It may appear strange that such should arise in the eighteenth century, But while I followed the routine of education in the schools of Geneva, I was, to a great degree, self-taught with regard to my favorite studies. My father was not scientific, and I was left to struggle with a child's blindness added to a student's thirst for knowledge. Under the guidance of my new preceptors, I entered with the greatest diligence into the search of the Philosopher's Stone and the Elixir of Life, but the latter soon obtained my undivided attention. Wealth was an inferior object, but what glory would attend the discovery, if I could banish disease from a human frame, and render man invulnerable to any but a violent death? Nor were these my only visions. The raising of ghosts or devils was a promise liberally accorded by my favourite authors, the fulfilment of which I most eagerly sought, and if my incantations were always unsuccessful, I attributed the failure rather to my own inexperience and mistake than to a want of skill or fidelity in my instructors and thus for a time I was occupied by exploding systems, mingling like an unadept, a thousand contradictory theories, and floundering desperately in a very slew of multifarious knowledge, guided by an ardent imagination and childish reasoning, till an accident again changed the current of my ideas. When I was about fifteen years old, we had retired to our house near Belle when we witnessed a most violent and terrible thunderstorm It advanced from behind the mountains of Jura, and the thunder burst at once with frightful loudness from various quarters of the heavens. I remained while the storm lasted, watching its progress with curiosity and delight. As I stood at the door, on a sudden I beheld a stream of fire, issue from an old and beautiful oak which stood about twenty yards from our house. And so soon, as the dazzling light vanished, the oak had disappeared, and nothing remained but a blasted stump. When we visited it the next morning, we found the tree shattered in a singular manner, it was not splintered by the shock, but entirely reduced to thin ribbons of wood. I never beheld anything so utterly destroyed. Before this, I was not unacquainted with the more obvious laws of electricity. On this occasion a man of great research in natural philosophy was with us and excited by this catastrophe. He entered on the explanation of a theory which he had formed on the subject of electricity and galvanism, which was at once new and astonishing to me. All that he said threw greatly into the shade Cornelius Agrippa, Albertus Magnus, and Paracelsus, the lords of my imagination, but by some fatality the overthrow of these men disinclined me to pursue my accustomed studies. It seemed to me as if nothing would or could ever be known. All that had so long engaged my attention suddenly grew despicable, but one of those caprices of the mind which we are perhaps most subject to in early youth I at once gave up my former occupations, set down natural history and all its progeny as it a deformed and abortive creation, and entertained the greatest disdain for a would-be science which could never even step within a threshold of real knowledge. In this mood of mine I betook myself to the mathematics and the branches of study appertaining to that science as being built upon secure foundations and so worthy of my consideration. How strangely, are our souls constructed, and by such slight ligaments are we bound to prosperity or ruin. When I look back, it seems to me as if this almost miraculous change of inclination and will was the immediate suggestion of the guardian angel of my life, the last effort made by the spirit of preservation to avert the storm that was even then hanging in the stars and ready to envelop me. Her victory was announced by an unusual tranquillity gladness of soul which followed the relinquishing of my ancient and latterly tormenting studies. It was thus that I was to be taught to associate evil with their prosecution, happiness with their disregard. It was a good effort of the spirit of good, but it was ineffectual. Destiny was too potent, and her immutable laws had decreed my utter and terrible destruction. CHAPTER THREE When I had attained the age of seventeen, my parents resolved that I should become a student at the University of Ingolstadt. I had hitherto attended the schools of Geneva, but my father thought it necessary for the completion of my education that I should be made acquainted with other customs than those of my native country. My departure was therefore fixed at an early date, but before the day resolved upon could arrive, the first misfortune of my life occurred, an omen, as it were, of my future misery." Elizabeth had caught the scarlet fever. Her illness was severe, and she was in the greatest danger. During her illness, many arguments had been urged to persuade my mother to refrain from attending upon her. She had at first yielded to our entreaties, but when she heard that the life of her favorite was menaced, she could no longer control her anxiety. She attended her sickbed. Her watchful attentions triumphed over the malignity of the distemper. Elizabeth was saved, but the consequences of this imprudence were fatal to her preserver. On the third day, my mother sickened. Her fever was accompanied by the most alarming symptoms, and the looks of her medical attendants prognosticated the worst event. On her deathbed, the fortitude and benignity of this best of women did not desert her. She joined the hands of Elizabeth and myself. "'My children,' she said, "'my firmest hopes of future happiness were placed on the prospect of your union.' This expectation will now be the consolation of your father. Elizabeth, my love, you must supply my place to my younger children. Alas, I regret that I am taken from you, and happy and beloved as I have been. Is it not hard to quit you all? But these are not thoughts befitting me. I will endeavor to resign myself cheerfully to death, and will indulge a hope of meeting you in another world. She died calmly, and her countenance expressed affection even in death. I need not describe the feelings of those whose dearest ties are rent by that most irreparable evil, the void that presents itself to the soul, and the despair that is exhibited on the countenance. It is so long before the mind can persuade itself that she whom we saw every day and whose very existence appeared a part of our own can have departed forever, that the brightness of a beloved eye can have been extinguished, and the sound of a voice so familiar and dear to the ear can be hushed, never more to be heard. These are the reflections of the first days, but when the lapse of time proves the reality of the evil, then the actual bitterness of grief commences. Yet from whom has not that rude hand rent away some dear connection? And why should I describe a sorrow which all have felt and must feel? The time of life arrives when grief is rather an indulgence than a necessity, and the smile that plays upon the lips, although it may be deemed a sacrilege, is not banished. My mother was dead, but we had still duties which we ought to perform. We must continue our course with the rest, and learn to think ourselves fortunate whilst one remains whom the spoiler has not seized. My departure for Ingolstadt, which had been deferred by these events, was now again determined upon. I obtained from my father a respite of some weeks. It appeared to me sacrilege so soon to leave the repose akin to death of the house of mourning and to rush into the thick of life. I was new to sorrow, but it did not the less alarm me. I was unwilling to quit the sight of those that remained to me, and above all, I desired to see my sweet Elizabeth in some degree consoled. She indeed veiled her grief and strove to act the comforter to us all. She looked steadily on life and assumed its duties with courage and zeal. She devoted herself to those whom she had been taught to call her uncle and cousins. Never was she so enchanting as at this time, when she recalled the sunshine of her smiles and spent them upon us. She forgot even her own regret in her endeavours to make us forget. The day of my departure at length arrived. Clerval spent the last evening with us. He had endeavoured to persuade his father to permit him to accompany me, and to become my fellow-student, but in vain. His father was a narrow-minded trader, and saw idleness and ruin in the aspirations and ambition of his son. Henry deeply felt the misfortune of being debarred from a liberal education. He said little, but when he spoke, I read in his kindling eye and in his animated glance a restrained but firm resolve not to be chained to the miserable details of commerce. We sat late. We could not tear ourselves away from each other, nor persuade ourselves to say the word farewell. It was said, and we had retired under the pretense of seeking repose, each fancying that the other was deceived. But when at morning's dawn I descended to the carriage which was to convey me away, they were all there. My father again to bless me, Clerval to press his hand once more, my Elizabeth to renew her entreaties that I would write often, and to bestow the last feminine attentions on her playmate and friend." I threw myself into the chase that was to convey me away, and indulged in the most melancholy reflections. I, who had ever been surrounded by amiable companions, continually engaged in endeavouring to bestow mutual pleasure, I was now alone. In the university whither I was going, I must form my own friends and be my own protector. My life had hitherto been remarkably secluded and domestic, and this had given me invincible repugnance to new countenances. I loved my brothers, Elizabeth and Clerval. These were old, familiar faces, but I believed myself totally unfitted for the company of strangers. Such were my reflections as I commenced my journey, but as I proceeded my spirits and hopes rose. I ardently desired the acquisition of knowledge. I had often, when at home, thought it hard to remain during my youth cooped up in one place, and had longed to enter the world and take my station among other human beings. Now my desires were complied with, and it would indeed have been folly to repent." I had sufficient leisure for these and many other reflections during my journey to Ingolstadt, which was long and fatiguing. At length, the high white steeple of the town met my eyes. I alighted and was conducted to my solitary apartment to spend the evening as I pleased. The next morning I delivered my letters of introduction and paid a visit to some of the principal professors. Chance, or rather the evil influence... The angel of destruction, which asserted omnipotent sway over me from the moment I turned my reluctant steps from my father's door, led me first to M. Krempe, professor of natural philosophy. He was an uncouth man, but deeply imbued with the secrets of his science. He asked me several questions concerning my progress in the different branches of science appertaining to natural philosophy. I replied carelessly and, partly in contempt, mentioned the names of my alchemists as the principal authors I had studied. The professor stared. "'Have you?' he said. "'Really spent your time in studying such nonsense?' I replied in the affirmative. "'Every minute,' continued M. Krimpy, with warmth, "'every instance that you have wasted on those books is utterly and entirely lost. "'You have burdened your memory with exploded systems and useless names.' "'Good God! In what desert land have you lived, where no one was kind enough to inform you that these fancies, which you have so greedily imbibed, are a thousand years old, and as musty as they are ancient?' "'I little expected, in this enlightened and scientific age, to find a disciple of Albertus Magnus and Paracelsus, My dear sir, you must begin your studies entirely anew.' So saying, he stepped aside and wrote down a list of several books treating of natural philosophy which he desired me to procure, and dismissed me after mentioning that, in the beginning of the following week, he intended to commence a course of lectures upon natural philosophy in its general relations, and that M. Waldman, a fellow professor, would lecture upon chemistry the alternate days that he omitted. I returned home not disappointed for I have said that I had long considered those authors useless whom the professor reprobated, but I returned not at all the more inclined to recur to these studies in any shape. M. Krempe was a little squat man with a gruff voice and a repulsive countenance. The teacher, therefore, did not prepossess me in favor of his pursuits. In rather a too philosophical and connected a strain, perhaps, I have given an account of the conclusions I had come to concerning them in my early years. As a child I had not been content with the results promised by the modern professors of natural science— with a confusion of ideas only to be accounted for by my extreme youth and my want of a guide on such matters. I had retrod the steps of knowledge along the paths of time, and exchanged the discoveries of recent inquirers for the dreams of forgotten alchemists. Besides, I had a contempt for the use of modern natural philosophy. It was very different when the masters of science sought immortality and power. Such views, although futile, were grand, but now the scene was changed. The ambition of the inquirer seemed to limit itself to the annihilation of those visions on which my interest in science was chiefly founded. I was required to exchange chimeras of boundless grandeur for realities of little worth. Such were my reflections during the first two or three days of my residence at Dinglestadt, which were chiefly spent in becoming acquainted with the localities and the principal residence in my new abode. But as the ensuing week commenced, I thought of the information which M. Krimpey had given me concerning the lectures and though I could not consent to go and hear that little conceited fellow deliver sentences out of a pulpit, I recollected what he had said of M. Waldman, whom I had never seen, as he had hitherto been out of town. Partly from curiosity and partly from idleness, I went into the lecturing-room, which M. Waldman entered shortly after. This professor was very unlike his colleague. He appeared about fifty years of age, but with an aspect expressive of the greatest benevolence. A few grey hairs covered his temples, but those at the back of his head were nearly black. His person was short, but remarkably erect, and his voice was the sweetest I had ever heard. He began his lecture by a recapitulation of the history of chemistry, and the various improvements made by different men of learning, pronouncing with fervor the names of the most distinguished discoverers. He then took a cursory view of the present state of the science, and explained many of its elementary terms. After having made a few preparatory experiments, he concluded with a panegyric upon modern chemistry, the terms of which I shall never forget." "'The ancient teachers of this science,' said he, "'promised impossibilities and performed nothing. "'The modern masters promise very little. "'They know that metals cannot be transmuted "'and that the elixir of life is a chimera. "'But these philosophers, "'whose hands seem only made to dabble in dirt "'and their eyes to pore over the microscope or crucible, "'have indeed performed miracles. "'They penetrate into the recesses of nature "'and show how she works in her hiding-places.' They ascend into the heavens. They have discovered how the blood circulates, and the nature of the air we breathe. They have acquired new and almost unlimited powers. They can command the thunders of heaven, mimic the earthquake, and even mock the invisible world with its own shadows. Such were the professor's words—rather, let me say, such were the words of fate—announced to destroy me. As he went on, I felt as if my soul were grappling with a palpable enemy. One by one the various keys were touched which formed the mechanism of my being. Chord after chord was sounded, and soon my mind was filled with one thought, one conception, one purpose. "'So much has been done,' exclaimed the soul of Frankenstein. "'More, far more will I achieve. Treading in the steps already marked, I will pioneer a new way, explore unknown powers, and unfold to the world the deepest mysteries of creation.' I closed not my eyes that night.' My internal being was in a state of insurrection and turmoil. I felt that order would thence arise, but I had no power to produce it. By degrees, after the morning's dawn, sleep came, I awoke and my yesternight's thoughts were as a dream. There only remained a resolution to return to my ancient studies and to devote myself to a science for which I believed myself to possess a natural talent. On the same day, I paid M. Waldman a visit. His manners in private were even more mild and attractive than in public, for there was a certain dignity in his mien during his lecture, which, in his own house, was replaced by the greatest affability and kindness. I gave him pretty nearly the same account of my former pursuits as I had given to his fellow professor. He heard with attention the little narration concerning my studies, and smiled at the names of Cornelius Agrippa and Paracelsus. But without the contempt that M. Crimpy had exhibited, he said that, These were the men to whose indefatigable zeal modern philosophers were indebted for most of the foundations of their knowledge. They had left to us, as an easier task, to give new names and arrange in connected classification the facts which they, in a great degree, had been the instruments of bringing to light. The labors of men of genius, however erroneously directed, scarcely ever fail in ultimately turning to the solid advantage of mankind. I listened to his statement, which was delivered without any presumptions or affectations and then added that his lecture had removed my prejudices against modern chemists. I expressed myself in measured terms, with the modesty and deference due from a youth to his instructor, without letting escape, inexperience in life would have made me ashamed, any of the enthusiasm which stimulated my intended labours. I requested his advice concerning the books I ought to procure. "'I am happy,' said M. Waldman to have gained a disciple and if your application equals your ability i have no doubt of your success chemistry is that branch of natural philosophy in which the greatest improvements have been and may be made it is on that account that i have made it my peculiar study But at the same time, I had not neglected the other branches of science. A man would make but a very sorry chemist if he attended to that department of human knowledge alone. If your wish is to become really a man of science, and not merely a petty experimentalist, I should advise you to apply to every branch of natural philosophy, including mathematics.' He then took me into his laboratory and explained to me the uses of his various machines, instructing me as to what I ought to procure and promising me the use of his own when I should have advanced far enough in the science not to derange their mechanism. He also gave me the list of books which I had requested, and I took my leave. Thus ended a day memorable to me. It decided my future destiny. Chapter 4 From this day, natural philosophy, and particularly chemistry, in the most comprehensive sense of the term, became nearly my sole occupation. I read with ardor those works so full of genius and discrimination which modern inquirers have written on these subjects. I attended the lectures and cultivated the acquaintances of the men of science of the university, and I found even in M. Krempe a great deal of sound sense and real information combined, it is true, with the repulsive physiognomy and manners, but not on that account the less valuable." In M. Waldman I found a true friend. His gentleness was never tinged by dogmatism, and his instructions were given with an air of frankness and good nature that banished every idea of pedantry. In a thousand ways he smoothed for me the path of knowledge and made the most obtruse inquiries clear and facile to my apprehension. My application was at first fluctuating and uncertain. It gained strength as I proceeded and soon became so ardent and eager that the stars often disappeared in the light of morning whilst I was yet engaged in my laboratory.' As I applied so closely, it may be easily conceived that my progress was rapid. My ardour was indeed the astonishment of the students, and my proficiency that of the masters. Professor Krempe often asked me, with a sly smile, how Cornelius Agrippa went on, whilst M. Waldman expressed the most heartfelt exultation in my progress. Two years passed in this manner, during which I paid no visit to Geneva, but was engaged, heart and soul, in the pursuit of some discoveries which I hoped to make. None but those who have experienced them can conceive— "'The enticements of science. "'In other studies you go as far as others have gone before you, "'and there is nothing more to know. "'But in a scientific pursuit there is continual food for discovery and wonder.' A mind of moderate capacity which closely pursues one study must infallibly arrive at great proficiency in that study, and I, who continually sought the attainment of one subject of pursuit and was solely wrapped up in this, improved so rapidly that at the end of two years I made some discoveries in the improvement of some chemical instruments, which procured me great esteem and admiration at the university.' When I had arrived at this point and had become as well acquainted with the theory and practice of natural philosophy as depended on the lessons of any of the professors at Ingolstadt, my residence there being no longer conductive to my improvements, I thought of returning to my friends in my native town, when an incident happened that protracted my stay. One of the phenomena which had peculiarly attracted my attention was the structure of the human frame, and indeed any animal endued with life. Whence I often asked myself, did the principle of life proceed? It was a bold question— and one which had never been considered as a mystery. Yet with how many things are we upon the brink of becoming acquainted, if cowardice and carelessness did not restrain our inquiries? I revolved these circumstances in my mind, and determined thenceforth to apply myself more particularly to those branches of natural philosophy which relate to physiology. Unless I had been animated by a most supernatural enthusiasm, my application to this study would have been irksome and almost intolerable. To examine the causes of life, we must first have recourse to death. I became acquainted with the science of anatomy, but this was not sufficient. I must also observe the natural decay and corruption of the human body. In my education, my father had taken the greatest precautions that my mind should be impressed with no supernatural horrors. I do not ever remember to have trembled at a tale of superstition, or to have feared the apparition of a spirit. Darkness had no effect upon my fancy, and a churchyard to me was merely the receptacle of bodies deprived of life, which, from being the seat of beauty and strength, had become food for the worm. Now, I was led to examine the cause and progress of this decay, and forced to spend days and nights in vaults and charnel houses. My attention was fixed upon every object the most insupportable to the delicacy of the human feelings. I saw how the fine form of man was degraded and wasted. I beheld the corruption of death succeed to the blooming cheek of life. I saw how the worm inherited the wonders of the eye and brain." I paused, examining and analyzing all the minutiae of causation as exemplified in the change from life to death and death to life, until from the midst of this darkness a sudden light broke in upon me, a light so brilliant and wondrous yet so simple, that while I became dizzy with the immensity of the prospect which it illustrated, I was surprised that among so many men of genius who had directed their inquiries toward the same science that I alone should be reserved to discover so astonishing a secret. Remember, I am not recording the vision of a madman. The sun does not more certainly shine in the heavens than what I now affirm is true. Some miracles might have produced it, yet the stages of the discovery were distinct and probable. After days and nights of incredible labor and fatigue, I succeeded in discovering the cause of generation and life. Nay more, I became myself capable of bestowing animation upon lifeless matter. The astonishment which I had at first experienced on this discovery soon gave place to delight and rapture. After so much time spent in painful labor, to arrive at once at the summit of my desires was the most gratifying consummation of my toils. But this discovery was so great and overwhelming that all the steps by which I had been progressively led to it were obliterated, and I beheld only the result. What had been the study and desire of the wisest men since the creation of the world was now within my grasp.' Not that, like a magic scene, it all happened upon me at once. The information I had obtained was of a nature rather to direct my endeavours so soon as I should point them towards the object of my search than to exhibit that object already accomplished. I was like the Arabian who had been buried with the dead and found a passage to life, aided only by one glimmering and seemingly ineffectual light. (laughs) I see by your eagerness and the wonder and hope which your eyes express, my friend, that you expect to be informed on the secret with which I am acquainted. That cannot be. Listen carefully until the end of my story, and you will easily perceive why I am reserved upon that subject. I will not lead you on, unguarded and ardent as I then was, to your destruction and infallible misery. Learn from me, if not by my precepts, at least by my example, how dangerous is the acquirement of knowledge, and how much happier that man is who believes his native town to be the world than he who aspires to become greater than his nature would allow." When I found so astonishing a power placed within my hands, I hesitated a long time concerning the manner in which I should employ it. Although I possessed the capacity of bestowing animation, yet to prepare a frame for the reception of it, with all its intricacies of fibers, muscles, and veins, still remained a work of inconceivable difficulty and labor. I doubted at first whether I should attempt the creation of a being like myself, or one of simpler organization but my imagination was too much exalted by my first success to permit me to doubt my ability to give life to an animal as complex and wonderful as man. The materials at present within my command hardly appeared adequate to so arduous an undertaking, but I doubted not that I should ultimately succeed. I prepared myself for a multitude of reverses. My operations might be incessantly baffled, and at last my work be imperfect. Yet when I considered the improvement which every day takes place in science and mechanics— I was encouraged to hope my present attempts would at least lay the foundations of future success, nor could I consider the magnitude and complexity of my plan as any argument of its impracticability. It was with these feelings that I began the creation of a human being. As the minuteness of the parts formed a great hindrance to my speed, I resolved contrary to my first intention to make the being of a gigantic stature, that is to say about eight feet in height and proportionately large, After having formed this determination, having spent some months in successfully collecting and arranging my materials, I began. No one can conceive the variety of feelings which bore me onwards, like a hurricane in the first enthusiasm of success. Life and death appeared to me ideal bounds which I should first break through and pour a torrent of light into our dark world. A new species would bless me as its creator and source. Many happy and excellent natures would owe their being to me. No father could claim the gratitude of the child so completely as I should deserve theirs. Pursuing these reflections, I thought that if I could bestow animation upon lifeless matter, I might, in process of time, although I now found it impossible, renew life where death had apparently devoted the body to corruption. These thoughts supported my spirits while I pursued my undertaking with unremitting ardour. My cheek had grown pale with study, and my person had become emaciated with confinement. Sometimes, on the very brink of certainty, I failed yet still I clung to the hope which the next day or the next hour might realize. One secret which I alone possessed was the hope to which I had dedicated myself, and the moon gazed on my midnight labors while, with relaxed and breathless eagerness, I pursued nature to her hiding places. Who shall conceive the horrors of my secret toil as I dabbled among the unhallowed damps of the grave or tortured the living animal to animate the lifeless clay? My limbs now tremble and my eyes swim with remembrance— but then a resistless and almost frantic impulse urged me forward. I seemed to have lost all soul or sensation but for this one pursuit. It was indeed but a passing trance that only made me feel with renewed acuteness so soon as, the unnatural stimulus ceasing to operate, I had returned to my old habits. I collected bones from charnel houses and distributed with profane fingers the tremendous secrets of the human frame in a solitary chamber or rather cell at the top of the house, and separated from all the other apartments by a gallery and staircase, I kept my workshop of filthy creation. My eyeballs were starting from their sockets and attending to the details of my employment. The dissecting room and the slaughterhouse furnished many of my materials, and often did my human nature turn with loathing from my occupation. Whilst still urged on by an eagerness which perpetually increased, I brought my work near to a conclusion." The summer months passed while I was thus engaged, heart and soul, in one pursuit. It was a most beautiful season. Never did the fields bestow a more plentiful harvest, or the vines yield a more luxuriant vintage, but my eyes were insensible to the charms of nature, and the same feelings which made me neglect the scenes around me caused me also to forget those friends who were so many miles absent, and whom I had not seen for so long a time. I knew my silence disquieted them, and I well remembered the words of my father." I know that while you are pleased with yourself, you would think of us with affection, and we shall hear regularly from you. You must pardon me if I regard any interruption in your correspondence as a proof that your other duties are equally neglected. I knew well, therefore, what would be my father's feelings, but I could not tear my thoughts from my employment, loathsome in itself, but which had taken an irresistible hold on my imagination. I wished, as it were, to procrastinate all that related to my feelings of affection until the great object which swallowed up every habit of my nature should be completed.' I then thought that my father would be unjust if he ascribed my neglect to vice or faultiness on my part, but I am now convinced that he was justified in conceiving that I should not be altogether free from blame. A human being in perfection ought always to preserve a calm and peaceful mind, and never to allow passion or transitory desire to disturb his tranquillity. I do not think that the pursuit of knowledge is an exception to this rule. If the study to which you apply yourself has a tendency to weaken your affections and to destroy your taste for those simple pleasures in which no alloy can possibly mix, then that study is certainly unlawful, that is to say, not benefiting the human mind. If this rule were always observed, if no man allowed any pursuit whatsoever to interfere with the tranquillity of his domestic affections, Greece had not been enslaved. Caesar would have spared his country— "'America would have been discovered more gradually, "'and the empires of Mexico and Peru had not been destroyed. "'But I forget that I am moralizing in the most interesting part of my tale, "'and your looks remind me to proceed. "'My father made no reproach in his letters "'and only took notice of my silence by inquiring into my occupations "'more particularly than before. "'Winter, spring, and summer passed away during my labors, "'but I did not watch the blossom or the expanding leaves, "'sights which before always yielded me supreme delight. "'So deeply was I engrossed in my occupation.' The leaves of that year had withered before my work drew near to a close, and now every day showed me more plainly how well I had succeeded, but my enthusiasm was checked by my anxiety, and I appeared rather like one doomed by slavery to toil in the mines or any other unwholesome trade than an artist occupied by his favorite employment. Every night I was oppressed by a slow fever, and I became nervous to a most painful degree. The fall of a leaf startled me, and I shunned my fellow creatures as if I had been guilty of a crime." Sometimes I grew alarmed at the wreck I perceived that I had become. The energy of my purpose alone sustained me. My labors would soon end, and I believed that exercise and amusement would then drive away incipient disease. And I promised myself both of these when my creation should be complete. Chapter 5 It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils— With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me, that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning. The rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe, or how delineate the wretch whom with such infinite pains and care I had endeavoured to form? His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features as beautiful, beautiful, great God, his yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath, his hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of a pearly whiteness but these luxuriances only formed a more hoary contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same color as the dun-white sockets in which they were set, his shriveled complexion, and straight black lips. The different accidents of life are not so changeable as the feelings of human nature. I had worked hard for nearly two years for the sole purpose of infusing life into an inanimate body. For this I had deprived myself of rest and health. I had desired it with an ardor that far exceeded moderation— But now that I had finished, the beauty of the dream vanished, and breathless horror and disgust filled my heart. Unable to endure the aspect of the being I had created, I rushed out of the room and continued a long time traversing my bedchamber, unable to compose my mind to sleep. At length, lassitude succeeded to the tumult I had before endured, and I threw myself on the bed in my clothes, endeavoring to seek a few moments of forgetfulness. But it was in vain. I slept indeed, but I was disturbed by the wildest dreams— I thought I saw Elizabeth, in the bloom of health, walking in the streets of Ingolstadt. Delighted and surprised, I embraced her, but as I imprinted the first kiss on her lips, they became livid with the hue of death. Her features appeared to change, and I thought that I beheld the corpse of my dead mother in my arms. A shroud enveloped her form, and I saw the graveworms crawling in the folds of the flannel. I started from my sleep with horror. A cold dew covered my forehead, my teeth chattered, and every limb became convulsed when by the dim and yellow light of the moon, as it forced its way through the window shutters, I beheld the wretch, the miserable monster whom I had created. He held up the curtains of the bed, and his eyes—if eyes they may be called—were fixed on me. His jaw opened, and he muttered some inarticulate sounds while a grin wrinkled his cheeks. He might have spoken, but I did not hear. One hand was stretched out seemingly to detain me, but I escaped and rushed downstairs— I took refuge in the courtyard belonging to the house which i inhabited where i remained during the rest of the night walking up and down in the greatest agitation listening attentively catching and fearing each sound as if it were to announce the approach of the demoniacal corpse which i had so miserably given life oh no mortal could support the horror of that countenance A mummy again, imbued with animation, could not be so hideous as that wretch. I gazed on him while unfinished. He was ugly then, but when those muscles and joints were rendered capable of motion, it became a thing such as even Dante could not have conceived. I passed the night wretchedly. Sometimes my pulse beat so quickly and hardly that I felt the palpitation of every artery. At others, I nearly sank to the ground through languor and extreme weakness. Mingled with this horror, I felt the bitterness of disappointment dreams that had been my food and pleasant rest for so long a space were now become a hell to me and the change was so rapid the overthrow so complete morning dismal and wet at length dawned and discovered to my sleepless and aching eyes the church of ingolstadt its white steeple and clock which indicated the sixth hour The porter opened the gates of the court, which had that night been my asylum, and I issued into the streets, pacing them with quick steps, as if I sought to avoid the wretch whom I feared every turning of the street would present to my view. I did not dare return to the apartment which I inhabited, but felt impelled to hurry on, although drenched by the rain which poured from a black and comfortless sky. I continued walking in this manner for some time, endeavouring by bodily exercise to ease the load that weighed upon my mind. I traversed the streets without any clear conception of where I was or what I was doing. My heart palpitated in the sickness of fear, and I hurried on with irregular steps, not daring to look about me. Like one who on a lonely road doth walk in fear and dread, and having once turned round, walks on, and turns no more his head, because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread." Continuing thus, I came at length opposite to the inn at which the various diligences and carriages usually stopped. Here I paused, I knew not why, but I remained some minutes with my eyes fixed on a coach that was coming towards me from the other end of the street. As I drew nearer, I observed that it was the Swiss diligence. It stopped just where I was standing, and on the door being opened, I perceived Henry Clerval, who on seeing me instantly sprung out. "'My dear Frankenstein!' exclaimed he. "'How glad I am to see you! "'How fortunate that you should be here "'at the very moment of my alighting!' "'Nothing could equal my delight on seeing Clerval. "'His presence brought back to my thoughts "'my father, Elizabeth, "'and all those scenes of home "'so dear to my recollection. "'I grasped his hand and in a moment "'forgot my horror and misfortune. "'I felt suddenly, and for the first time "'during many months, calm and serene joy. "'I welcomed my friend, therefore, "'in the most cordial manner, "'and we walked towards my college.' Clerval continued talking for some time about our mutual friends and his own good fortune in being permitted to come to Ingolstadt. "'You may easily believe,' said he, "'how great was the difficulty to persuade my father that all necessary knowledge was not comprised in the noble art of bookkeeping, and indeed I believe I left him incredulous to the last, for his constant answer to my unwearied entreaties was the same as that of the Dutch schoolmaster and the vicar of Wakefield.' I have ten thousand florins a year without Greek. I eat heartily without Greek. But his affection for me at length overcame his dislike of learning, and he has permitted me to undertake a voyage of discovery to the land of knowledge. It gives me the greatest delight to see you, but tell me how you left my father, brothers, and Elizabeth. Very well and very happy, only a little uneasy that they hear from you so seldom. By the by, I meant to lecture you a little upon that account myself, but, my dear Frankenstein, "'continued he, stopping short and gazing full in my face. "'I did not before remark how very ill you appear, so thin and pale. "'You look as if you had been watching for several nights. "'You have guessed right. "'I have lately been so deeply engaged in one occupation "'that I have not allowed myself sufficient rest, as you see. "'But I hope, I I sincerely hope, that all these employments are now at an end "'and that I am at length free.' I trembled excessively. I could not endure to think of, and far less to allude to, the occurrences of the preceding night. I walked with a quick pace, and we soon arrived at my college. I then reflected, and the thought made me shiver, that the creature whom I left in my apartment might still be there, alive and walking about. I dreaded to behold this monster, but I feared still more that Henry should see him. Entreating him, therefore, to remain a few minutes at the bottom of the stairs, I darted up towards my own room. My hand was already on the lock of the door before I recollected myself—' I then paused, and a cold shivering came over me. I threw the door forcibly open, as children are accustomed to do when they expect a spectre to stand in waiting of them on the other side, but nothing appeared. I stepped fearfully in. The apartment was empty, and my bedroom was also freed from its hideous guest. I could hardly believe that so great a good fortune could have befallen me, but when I became assured that my enemy had indeed fled, I clapped my hands for joy and ran down to Clerval. We ascended into my room, and the servant presently brought breakfast, but I was unable to contain myself. It was not joy only that possessed me. I felt my flesh tingle with excess of sensitiveness, and my pulse beat rapidly. I was unable to remain for a single instant in the same place. I jumped over the chairs, clapped my hands, and laughed out loud. Clerval at first attributed my unusual spirits to joy on his arrival, but when he observed me more attentively, he saw a wildness in my eyes, for which he could not account, and my loud, unrestrained, heartless laughter frightened and astonished him. "'My dear Victor!' cried he. "'What, for God's sake, is the matter? Do not laugh in that manner! How ill you are! What is the cause of all this?' "'Do not ask me!' cried I, putting my hands before my eyes, for I thought I saw the dreaded spectre glide into the room. "'He can tell! Oh, save me! Save me!' "'I imagined that the monster seized me, "'and I struggled furiously and fell down in a fit. "'Poor Cleval! What must have been his feelings! "'A meeting, which he anticipated with such joy, "'so strangely turned to bitterness. "'But I was not the witness of his grief, "'for I was lifeless and did not recover my senses for a long, long time. "'This was the commencement of a nervous fever "'which confined me for several months. "'During all that time Henry was my only nurse,' I afterwards learned that, knowing my father's advanced age and unfitness for so long a journey, and how wretched my sickness would make Elizabeth, he spared them this grief by concealing the extent of my disorder. He knew that I could not have a more kind and attentive nurse than himself, and firm in the hope he felt of my recovery, he did not doubt that, instead of doing harm, he performed the kindest action that he could towards them. But I was in reality very ill, and surely nothing but the unbounded and unremitting attentions of my friend could have restored me to life— The form of the monster on whom I had bestowed existence was for ever before my eyes, and I raved incessantly concerning him. Doubtless my words surprised Henry. He at first believed them to be the wanderings of my disturbed imagination, but the pertinacity with which I continually recurred to the same subject persuaded him that my disorder indeed owed its origin to some uncommon and terrible event. By very slow degrees, and with frequent relapses that alarmed and grieved my friend, I recovered, I remember the first time I became capable of observing outward objects with any kind of pleasure. I received that the fallen leaves had disappeared and that the young buds were shooting forth from the trees that shaded my window. It was a divine spring, and the season contributed greatly to my convalescence. I felt also sentiments of joy and affection revive in my bosom. My gloom disappeared, and in a short time I became as cheerful as before I was attacked by the fatal passion. "'Dearest Clerval," exclaimed I, How kind, how very good you are to me! This whole winter, instead of being spent in study as you promised yourself, has been consumed in my sick-room. How shall I ever repay you? I feel the greatest remorse for the disappointment of which I have been the occasion. But you will forgive me. You will repay me entirely if you do not discompose yourself, but get well as fast as you can, and since you appear in such good spirits, I may speak to you on one subject, may I not?' I trembled. One subject, what could it be? Could he allude to the object on whom I dared not even think? Compose yourself, said Clevar, who observed my change of colour. I will not mention it if it agitates you, but your father and cousin will be very happy if they received a letter from you in your own handwriting. They hardly know how ill you have been, and are uneasy at your long silence. Is that all, my dear Henry? How could you suppose that my first thoughts would not fly towards those dear, dear friends whom I love and who are so deserving of my love? If this is your present temper, my friend, you will perhaps be glad to see a letter that has been lying here some days for you. It is from your cousin, I believe. There was a passage in this episode that really struck me. I want to read it again for you. A human being in perfection ought always to preserve a calm and peaceful mind and never to allow passion or transitory desire to disturb his tranquility. I do not think that the pursuit of knowledge is an exception to this rule. If the study to which you apply yourself has a tendency to weaken your affections and to destroy your taste for those simple pleasures in which no alloy can possibly mix, then that study is certainly unlawful. That is to say, not benefiting the human mind. Frankenstein says that if this rule were always observed, if no man allowed any pursuit whatsoever to interfere with the tranquility of his domestic affections, we would all be far better off. This is a profound statement and it got me thinking, am I allowing my pursuits to get in the way of truly living this life that God has given me? Thank you so much for listening today. Remember to share the podcast with friends. That is the biggest way you can help us grow. Check us out on all the socials. Links are in the description as well as anotherworldaudiobooks.wordpress.com.